Hello, welcome to another episode of the Students Talk Security Podcast. My name is Pranav Kuntapalli, and I'm a sophomore economics and math major. Today, we are doing the second episode of the new mini-series, Meet the Endisk Fellows. Endisk brings together leading scholars, soldiers, and students to learn more about American national and international security. My hope is to introduce to you some of the cool people we have at Endisk. I'm beyond excited to introduce my second guest, Chaplain Billy Graham, who is from the Army and is a War College Fellow this year. Good morning, Billy. How are you doing? Good morning. Could you kind of give us a brief introduction to yourself and a short biography? Absolutely. First of all, I'd like to just say that it's really awesome to be considered one of the cool people. Um, <laughs> never had that experience, so I'm not sure how to deal with that. I grew up in uh, Huntington, West Virginia. I hate to admit it, but it's the reality. The only thing that anyone would know about that place is Marshall University, and right now that's bad. Um, I was torn that day, but I was thrilled that uh, the Thundering Herd you know, pulled it off. Anyway, here's my secret confession that now everybody knows about. As far as my military service, I've actually been in uniform for over 28 years. Spent six years as an enlisted soldier, a chaplain assistant in the Indiana, Indiana National Guard, Army National Guard. And then I spent three years in the Army Reserve as a chaplain candidate. And then since 2003, I've been on active duty as a chaplain. Kind of the interesting story about that is I came on active duty one April. And by 17 April, I was in Iraq during that initial push. It's been a fascinating ride and lots of incredible um, experiences. I've been in Iraq, uh, served in Iraq twice, and Afghanistan once. Total of about 30 months uh, in a combat zone. I've also had the privilege of serving in Korea uh, for three years, which was absolutely a phenomenal experience. Twice at the uh, famed 101st uh, Airborne Division Air Assault, as well as the Pentagon. I was there for four years and other stations that, again, no one would know about or hear about unless you're connected to the military. I had never heard of the position of a military chaplain until I met you in class. And I was wondering if you can expand more about the position, especially in the context that it seems to me almost a blatant violation of a church and state separation and that the government is funding people of religious backgrounds. And While I was looking up, I realized there's a Supreme Court case that confirms the institution of chaplain as being constitutional. And I was wondering if you could expand upon that. Absolutely. It is kind of interesting, just the role of the chaplain. And I was even going to mention that in the Army, as chaplains, we don't go by our rank. We do go by the name chaplain on purpose uh, to identify our role and function and and its uniqueness. And there are some that like to nickname it. They'll call call me chaps or chappy which is okay. I respond, respond to all those, but I, I really am Billy. But to my soldiers, they, it's one of those three. The role of the chaplain, our number one constitutional role is to ensure the free exercise of religion across the board for all the soldiers. That, that is why in the very beginning in 1775, when General Washington requested from Congress to start chaplains, first of all, is to ensure that in the camps, we had kind of a dual role, and it's still our dual role as today, is that General Washington wanted for the soldiers a moral voice for the troops in the camps and also to provide for their religious needs. 
spiritual needs, but also to provide a advisement to the commanders on what was going on in the camps, so that moral aspect. But the Constitution, when it was finally written several years later, it kind of pinned that out. And if you understand the historical context in which America was built, is that, you know, especially in England, there was the Church of England, and there was a mandate, basically, of the if you're going to be English, you're going to be of the Church of England. And so there was this connection. But the great promise of America was is that you come to America and you're going to have the freedom to believe any kind of religion or none that you choose. The role of the chaplain kind of steps into that weird role in the middle where we are the ones that will provide or perform for the soldiers of those religious needs while ensuring that the government is not going to create their own religion or try to put pressure on people, soldiers, a certain belief system. We stand in that gap. It's really the commander's responsibility, but it's really our role to do that for them. It's, we're the experts in that arena. And yes, there's been uh, several challenges you know, over the years of the constitutionality of the chaplaincy and does it does it fit? Does it ma- you know, match? And the Supreme Court has always ruled in our favor that absolutely not only is the chaplaincy constitutional, but it's absolutely an essential aspect of the military service. I think that's really fascinating. And another part of what you explained to me that the role of the chaplain was, is that although you're soldiers, at the same time, you're religious people, but you're also a non-combatant. Yes. And I was wondering if you can explain more about how those kind of almost paradoxical roles fit with each other and make sense. I can understand that because most people have their concept of the military by watching war movies. And Hollywood has to take things to extreme in order to tell the story. There are some beautiful moments, and I always get very excited about it because I will even yell out because I I just love war movies. You know, Combat Chaplain, because... Every once in a while, there's a tiny little clip on a chaplain performing their role in a combat zone, and they depict it on, on the screen. The chaplain, we are unique in that we're in uniform. We are soldiers. We, we do training. We do all the training that everybody else does except for weapons. We don't do any weapons training. We don't carry weapons. We're not authorized. It's not what we do. And we are the religious leaders in the unit. It is interesting dynamic being the only person on the battlefield that does not have a weapon when everybody else around you probably wants to try to kill you. It does, you know, add an a, a interesting, interesting uh, dilemma for us. And some soldiers are just as concerned because they look at me like, what are you doing out here and, and how do you do this? Of course, my faith is paramount in that. I said, I absolutely believe God put me in this role. He also gives me that strength and that courage to kind of step into it. And I also am able to then present something to my soldiers as a, yes, I'm in uniform, and yes, I'm doing what they're doing, and I eat where they eat, I go where they go, I sleep in the mud when they sleep in the mud. But I also bring that presence of the divine, if you will, this strange guy who wanders around without a weapon that still loves on them and cares for them and uh, kind of does that, that strange thing. According to Geneva Convention, um, Geneva Conventions, the role of the chaplain is respected in that, in those conventions. 
in, in several ways. One is, is exactly that. We are non-combatants. In the American military, we even go so far as not bearing arms, even to protect ourselves. That's kind of uniqueness even across other nations. We are assigned a, an enlisted soldier that provides security for us, but we ourselves do not. The other part of that then means that if we are ever captured and if that enemy that we're in contest with uh, respects the conventions, then in essence, a chaplain cannot become a POW. We are a captured person that has the freedom to not only minister to our soldiers, but in some cases, we're even authorized to minister to our captors. It's a unique role is that being an American soldier, but understand that we have responsibility to humanity on behalf of the divine. It's a very dynamic and an interesting aspect of what we do and how we do it. When you were talking earlier about being the religious leader for your unit and representing the divine presence, I was wondering how that actually manifests itself if in your unit you have soldiers from different faith backgrounds or no faith backgrounds altogether. How does that actually work? That is the beauty of, of the chaplaincy is that we all enter into the military understanding that it's a very broad scope of folks who have faith and no faith traditions. And pluralistic is the, the official term for it, many beliefs. Chaplains, unlike any other officers, we still wear a religious emblem on our uniform, and that's done on purpose. We wear it on our headgear, our hat, and we also wear it on our jackets. That is a quick, because when I can walk into a room, every soldier will look over at the uniform and they will see, for me, being a, a Christian chaplain, they will see the cross and they will go, oh, chaplain. Now, if I've done my work well, that my soldiers are going to know me by face because one of the things we want to do is get out and mix and mingle uh, with our soldiers wherever they are. Uh, like I said, living where they live and do what they do. Then the execution of my role, other than that presence, because that is that's very, very important. Um, we even call it ministry of presence. Just being there can be a comfort. Again, it's for some folks that is that, God is here kind of mind. And there are those who, who have no beliefs or believe something else different. There's still something about having the chaplain there that is valued even in that. And in that pluralistic responsibilities that we have is that if you're in my unit, I have a responsibility to you. Going back to what we talked about first and a constitutional responsibility is that, and I believe this wholeheartedly, is that to the degree in which everyone else gets to practice their faith is the same degree in which I get to practice mine. So I'm extremely passionate about helping anyone and everyone to be able to practice their faith as they see fit. And that has a myriad of, you know, because there are religious faith traditions that, you know, we can talk about. And, you know, Christian is a one. But even in that, there's so many expressions of that. And there are some that is not. It's more of a non-religious spiritual aspect. For me, I'm just as passionate to ensure that those soldiers can practice their spirituality that's benefit for them. So in, in my role, I've had tons of opportunities across the spectrum of faith traditions of engaging sol soldiers where they are. Uh, folks that are a little closer to my own belief system, I've had those great 
interactions and engagements and discussions. In our terminology, we, we like to say that we can either perform or provide. So in some folks, their religious practice, I can actually perform. I'm a Protestant. Therefore, I can do a Protestant worship experience for, you know, those soldiers who choose to take part in that. Then there are some other faith traditions that I can't perform, but I can provide. I can't do a mass for my Catholic soldiers. That would make everybody mad. That's not that's not good. Therefore, what I have to do is, is I have to go and find a priest that I can say, hey, can you come and do mass for my soldiers or help my soldiers get to where the mass is being said. In that way, those soldiers are getting their religious needs taken care of, even though I can't do it. And it goes across the spectrum. I do the same thing for, for my Muslim soldiers, for my Jewish soldiers, and even for my soldiers who, who may be Wiccan or pagan, who come from a tradition that is not as well-known, but they still have those spiritual religious needs. And it's very common for us, and when there's not a chaplain that can perform these things, that oftentimes there, there may be another religious leader that is authorized by that group that can lead a worship experience or a faith practice. And so we will seek them out, and we even will vet them. We have a vetting process, and all that's done kind of on the up and up so that it's not us that's saying, yes, you can do this. It is their religious tradition is saying, yes, they're qualified to do this. And again, I've done that across the board. There are some instances even where Catholic soldiers can do some things in in that faith that doesn't require a priest. And so I utilize those individuals to do those things, again, according to their faith tradition. So that means as a chaplain, I've got to know a little bit about a lot of different faith traditions in order to assist and help. But individually, I love having those engagements with folks from all these different traditions and having those learning from them as they learn from me and those back and forths. I've had great conversations across the board with all those traditions and those who have none. Wonderful conversations with uh, several atheists through my career taught me a lot. And hopefully I, I was able to share a little bit with them. The whole idea of chaplain, I don't want to get too deep into the history, but the word itself really comes from French, and it has the idea of serving. And so the very essence of who we are and what we do is about serving. How do we serve our soldiers, especially in the realm of their spirituality and their religion? That kind of gets muddied because if i got a soldier that's hurting or hungry or having family problems, I'm going to lean into that and go, how can I help? I want to serve. So that's a, a big part of who we are and what we do. So I think I want to push on the tension between being a soldier and also being a religious person. So for example, a commander, their main priority is the well-being of their soldiers. And that is what they will prioritize. For example, if they're in the heat of battle, they're looking out for their unit and not for an enemy unit. For them, their unit is the most important thing. But as someone who's both a soldier and a religious person, especially when some religious traditions teach the sanctity of human life, of all human life, mm-hmm. how do you balance that tension? And I think to be more pointed, is an American life worth more to you than a foreign life? Anyone who's ever served in combat 
can relate of how difficult that can be because by the very nature of how soldiers are trained and how we think is that you have a huge reliance on the person to your left and your right. And me as a chaplain without the weapon is that I have to trust the folks around me, especially my enlisted religious affairs specialist. And I could go off on a whole long conversation of their role and function since I used to do that job. But we get into our minds that this little bubble, this unit, is that we depend on each other to get us home. And when you're in, in very difficult and very dangerous positions, it is natural to cling very much to this bubble because that is your safety. We depend on each other to take care of ourselves to get us back home to our families. For me, I have to expand that bubble a little bit. Yes, I, I care deeply for my, my guys, my folks, because I absolutely want to see every one of my soldiers, you know, come home to their families. Losing one just rips a part of my soul out. I also, when I am looking out into the masses, if you will, even into the faces of the enemy, there is it's another human soul created by God that also wants to get home to their family. They're in this armed struggle for whatever their motivations are for that enemy. And therein lies that interesting dynamic of which the chaplains get to sit, is that, as I was describing about under the conventions, is that I get to look at the broader scope of humanity, caring for the soul of all, not just my own. I have lots and lots of war stories, but going to what's called the CASH, the combat hospital, surgical hospital, to visit my soldiers. But also while I'm there, one case, it was, you know, Iraqis and uh, that were in there being treated by the medical professionals. If I had a translator, I would feel just as comfortable to be able to go in and, and minister to them as I would for my own soldiers. Now, hospitals have their own chaplain, so... Maybe that chaplain was able to do that. Maybe they had a translator. I don't know. But that would not be outside the scope of what we do as chaplains because we see humanity. We see the, the individual. And, yes, our first and foremost priority is, is the American soldier. That's, that's why the Army, that's why the government pays us. That's why we're a part of this unit. However, for me, I like to also think that there is kind of a broader understanding and value, if you will. Um, that also helps because soldiers are struggling when they're in that very difficult place because it's not natural for people to want to kill other people. That's a real hard thing to kind of have to kind of wrestle with, struggle with, and come to grips with. And even when you do it, then you almost have to wrestle in your own soul about was that right, was it wrong, how do I contend with that? As a chaplain, if I have this image of humanity, in some ways I can help those soldiers come to grips with what they're doing, but I can also come with it with a moral voice in saying that are there right ways, I hate to say it this way, is there right ways to kill and is there wrong ways? Is there, is there a way to go home with honor because you did your duty for the sake of your nation, for the sake of your buddies and your unit? You could go home with your head out high, even though you had to do hard things. It's a very difficult understanding 
for some folks who have never served in the military because it just sounds convoluted. But when you're in that heat, like you said, in the heat of battle, it is very, very real, especially for the warrior that has to look down their rifle and in a blink of an eye, they have to decide if they're going to take a life or not. I'd rather them have that basis built in, in moral constraints and not in immoral, meaning that there's no constraints. And if you can appreciate you know, the humanity that you're taking, that elevates that morality. I mean, sticking with the topic of the heat of battle, when a soldier passes away in combat, as an American consumer of news, what we see are the procession at Dover, right? We see the bodies being flown to Dover. That is our vantage point into it, but it's a very brief look at it. As someone who is with the unit, I would assume that you have a lot closer role when the soldier passes away and to deal with that. So what is your role as a chaplain when a soldier is killed? And dealing with that, if it is very closely, how has that impacted you? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Let me let me frame it in, in kind of describing what happens on the ground in combat by kind of alluding back to my first combat loss. Again, early on, I mentioned that literally two weeks after coming on active duty, I was in Iraq. One month after that, I had my first KIA uh, killed in action in Iraq. My role as a chaplain is now I have to step into the role of being a comforter. Um, the soldier was a part of a unit and a very valued member of that unit. Um, beloved. It's really kind of a phenomenal story, and even in his sacrifice. And just to kind of allude to it a little bit, just to kind of give a, a snapshot of soldiers, is that he was a truck driver, and he has a very big truck, and he's going down the highways of Iraq. And it's a very dangerous place, driving up and down the roads of Iraq. Uh, somebody's always wanting to blow you up or shoot you or something like that. And as he's driving his, his big old truck down the highway, the, there was an Iraqi family that kind of drove up beside him. It's really kind of fascinating in Iraq. It was fairly common to see these tiny little cars. I can't even give you a snapshot of what it looked like in America. They were really kind of small, compact little cars. And inside these cars would be very, you know, big families. So here you have this car full of kids, mom, dad, and that car kind of whipped in front of a soldier in his truck. Now, the soldier, he had every right just to basically bowl that truck or that car over. And he would have been justified that he did the right thing on protecting you know, himself and those around him. But that's not what he did. Out of instinct, after seeing this family, and oh, by the way, he's a parent himself. He had a father and he had a daughter back home is that instead he turned his wheel really fast and to avoid that car, and the truck flipped. And when it did so, uh, it killed the soldier. Incredible sacrifice. So let me paint a picture of kind of what that looks like then. I'm not there. I'm not with this convoy moving out. I am back where, you know, with the unit. But then the word comes over the radio, hey, this happened. But then you have all the soldiers that were with him also in his convoy. So i got to wait for them to come back to base. And as soon as they get back, I'm right where they come back. And I kind of want to do a, a really quick 
group huddle, basically, with these soldiers because they just had to go through a very traumatic event. Just kind of look them in the eye, and I wanted to hear real quick what they were kind of wrestling with, give them a, a little bit of comfort of, in essence, just kind of sharing, you know, maybe a little bit of hope that, yes, this was hard, this is difficult, but together we're going to get through this. And it's a very emotional. I mean, it's, it's hard to think because... Again, everybody has in their minds that soldiers are these super Rambos that have no emotions, and that's absolutely unreal. We're humans, and we do feel. But we also, as soldiers, oftentimes we'll take those emotions and we'll kind of stuff them somewhere because we know that we got to be on target, and we, we don't always have time to feel. And we got to jump back in. But as a chaplain, i got to kind of step into that role because people are hurting, they are struggling, they're like, wow, what do I do with this? So that's my initial thing. And then the standard then was is that for every soldier that we lose, we do a memorial ceremony. And that's our way of the closest thing to it, and it's not really even fits, is, is like a funeral. But ours is, is, is very, it's a different dynamic to it because we want to celebrate the soldier. We want to celebrate the soldier's service. It's very patriotic. It's not necessarily religious or spiritual. There are religious elements to it, but it's minor in a lot of ways. Uh, as a chaplain, we're often the experts in it. That's what we do. We we step in because we want to offer, again, that comfort, but we're not the only ones. Typically, we'll have a good friend. We'll have maybe their leader. We'll have their commander. They'll all have things that they want to share. And then as a chaplain, I have my part there's a couple of prayers. There's also a whole other ceremony aspect to it that, unless you've served in the military, really just doesn't make sense. But for us, it means everything. Things that people are aware of is there is taps, there's the sounding of the volleys, the, the rifles, but there's some other aspects to the, the ceremony that it's very pertinent to us. And it's very, the standard was within three days, 72 hours from the incident, we're going to have some memorial. In those three days, we had to put together a memorial, meaning who's going to take part? What are their sayings? You know, what are they going to say? We're going to build a, a bulletin. And again, this is in Iraq. This is not an established. We're, we're just now getting to a place. Even having a computer was difficult. And we're doing all these things, finding a place that we can do this and we can do this safely. There's just a lot to it, but we did this. In those three days, not only are we doing that part, but we're also kind of sharing with the unit, making sure that they're okay. The soldier itself, they also get a process to get them home, the lost soldier, because it's very, very important to the American military that all of our soldiers come home. And so there's a whole other process of making sure that the soldier gets home. There's also an aspect to that is that when there is a loss, no matter where it is, but in combat, it kind of makes sense to everybody, but any loss is that there's a form that we all fill out that has our main people that we need to notify. So when that happened in Iraq, there was another chaplain and another soldier that was going to visit his wife and was going to notify her that her husband was killed in action. It's a very, very difficult job to do because... The shock of that is almost unbearable. It's the worst possible news. It's the worst possible mission. I've done it many times. Stepping into somebody else's living room and share such horrible news is um, 
yeah, it's just rips your heart out. But back to the after the memorial, <laughs> we go through all of this. We have a memorial because when the incident happened, at least for that small part of the unit, the commander decided that we're going to take them off the road until after the memorial. So we have the memorial. Then there's this thing that we can do that is basically a, a decompression, if you will, where we get all the people who were involved in the incident, all the people who were with him on the road, it's kind of a, a way for them to kind of share their grief, share their anger, share whatever they need to share to kind of get it out. So we had that after the memorial. And the memorial, again, is an opportunity for them to kind of have their farewells. Uh, but then we have the, the decompression. There, there's a real name to it, but we'll just call it that for understanding. And then... That is the kind of the last thing that we can do is because at the end of that, we will also kind of bring them together and go, okay, is everybody set? Because knowing that the very next day, they're going to get back to their mission. They got to get back on the road. They got to keep driving up down the highways. They got to keep fulfilling their obligation of why they're there. For me personally, I mean, that was the first and it was, it was hard. I'd been around the chaplain corps and, and been a pastor before, so I understood some of the dynamics of what was going on here. I just didn't really know how much it was going to impact me. It's very common for chaplains is that we want to stay strong for our soldiers. And I don't know that, for me personally, if that was the best thing or the right thing, but that's what I did. But that's what I did for years upon years. Whether it's in a combat zone or we lost soldiers back home, you know, due to accidents, due to whatever reasons, we kept keep having to do memorials because that's what we do. We do it for every one of our soldiers, no matter how they lost. It really started taking a toll on me because I never took time to truly grieve until I finally did. And then it was a, a very difficult span of time. And fortunately, I had another specialized chaplain called Family Life Chaplain that kind of walked with me through that grief process. I got a lot of stuff out a lot of crying. For me, wanting to encourage other folks not to do that. It was not healthy. It was not wise. It was not good that I buried all that. We are humans and we're whole beings. And as whole beings, we have to be able to find a way to manage those emotions, but at the same time, be healthy about it. And I've encouraged lots of soldiers, even in the combat zone, it's like, hey, I got it. You don't want to mourn here and now, but I highly encourage you, as soon as you get home, you've got to do that. You've got to find a way to do that. Go visit a, a gravestone. And it was in the midst of me finally healing years after this loss that I actually went to that soldier's uh, gravesite. I cried again. And it was, it was a very, very healthy, but a very somber time for me to just to kind of Finally, after all those years of saying farewell to one of my warriors, been to be able to grieve that moment and those memories. Thanks so much for sharing that. Do you have any advice for ROTC students who are going into active, who might go into active combat in the future, on how to stay fit spiritually and main, and keep that aspect of their health in mind? Absolutely. It is critical in my mind that everyone who serves is, first of all, identify that there is a spiritual need. 
sometimes we don't even identify that. And as whole beings, we are. We're spiritual people. Is identify that. And if you have a faith tradition, you have to seek that out and put those practices into into play and make it a priority. The, the demands on a soldier, especially in a combat environment, are extreme. But there's always a way to to express and to live out that spirituality. One of the mantras that we have, again, as a lot of Christian chaplains, military is mostly, not all, but mostly Christian chaplains, is that we will say that every day is a Sunday. Meaning that when you're in an operation, if you have a, a few minutes, as an example, when my convoys were going out, I would regularly go to their pre-brief. I would take less than two minutes and I could share a scripture and say a word of prayer. That was a way that I could bring some comfort, some encouragement. Was it a full-blown, hour-long worship service with bands? And No, it was none of that. It was very simple. But it was a simple something that soldiers craved, and they wanted that before they went out on their mission. I strongly encourage any soldier, especially the Arachi guys, as they're preparing for and leaning toward service is that, first of all, put into practice now of what that's going to look like. If you're Catholic, go to Mass. Make it a real priority now. And when you get in the military, look for it. Find a way to make that a priority. Because when you get into the ugly, you got to have something that you can lean on. you got to have something you can fall back on. Because it's hard. It's hard on the body. It's hard on the mind. It's hard on the soul. And if, you, if you're empty going into that, you're going to have a real hard time kind of sustaining yourself to get to the other side. However, if you're taking healthy practices, even in the midst of the hard, you're going to be okay. And you're going to come out on the other side okay. Because even in my little confession here of, you know, that one part of me really emotionally disconnecting. Every other way, I was able to sustain myself. And when I came out, I was really fine. And even anybody even looked at me and said, well, you're a chaplain. You're, of course you're fine. Yes, there's some truth to that, but there's also some parts that I struggled with. And so my encouragement for my own bad mistakes was make that such a reality and, and so important to you across the spectrum of what it means to be human, uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually. You, you just got to make all of that a priority just to sustain you in the hard times. I don't have a faith tradition that I believe in, but I think that spiritual health is especially really important. We're going to close out with a rapid fire. So what is one book that's really changed the way you think about things and you would recommend? It's going to sound cliche-ish, but if you take it from what it's worth, I absolutely will say the Bible. But more importantly, I will say the Gospels. If you will read the Gospels and try to put aside your own perceived conceptions about your faith tradition and just look at the person of Jesus and how did he engage people. I think there's some eye-opening opportunities there. Me being able to do that and kind of throw away some of the my own preconceptions and to really gravitate to who is Jesus and how did he really connect with people. I found some fascinating things about the relationships he has. The relationships he has with the religious leaders versus 
those people who were, you know, probably the dredges of society? What were the relationships he had with his own disciples? Matter of fact, I think there's some incredible leadership skills and techniques in how Jesus led his team. Uh, I even did my doctoral thesis on that because I'm so passionate about it. And I was just, I could never get to the bottom of that. There's just so rich and so deep on thinking about, you know, how Jesus was able to do that. So anyway, I know it sounds cliche. It's a chaplain who loves the Bible. And I really am dialed into those gospels. I've spent more than a decade just in the book of Mark because I am just so enthralled in, in just the personhood of Jesus. What about favorite movie? That is hard. I, I've already said that I love war movies. But let me let me peel all that back. I love military history, especially World War II. I think one of the ones that impacted me the most was Saving Private Ryan. Now, here's a fascinating thing. If you do some research on it, is that the movie is really based upon a chaplain during World War II. But, of course, Hollywood needs to do what they need to do and create this storyline. And they did a phenomenal job. And the other thing about Saving Private Ryan, other than there's so many leadership skills in there, so many storylines, is that it gives those glimpses of combat chaplain. Even in the leading scene when they're assaulting the beach, crazy chaplains out there as a Catholic giving last rites to a soldier on the beach when there's bullets and bombs. It's kind of like combat chaplain. He goes where his soldiers are going. He's in the hardship doing his duty as, as he's required by God. But there's so much more about that movie, right down to the very last line, earn this. I, I get chills even to this day just saying that and all that that means and that whole story and there's leadership things in there. And there's some, if you have eyes to see, there's some fallacies in the story. I'm not going to run for anybody, but that's definitely a topic of discussion where we can start peeling away some of the things that aren't quite real. Mm-hmm. Um, what about a moment in history that fascinates you? I, again, way too many. <laughs> I love history. The thing that really that I, I, I harp back to is, again, going to the Gospels. Sitting in that tiny little boat uh, in the middle of that lake. And I've been in that, in that sea, the Sea of Galilee. It's not that big. But there is this massive storm and there's fishermen who have spent their lives on this lake fishing. And they're scared to the point of crying out in fear. So that you know it's got to be really, really bad. And then Jesus is standing up and going, dudes. You know, be still, be quiet. And there's this, and and then the conversation afterwards. Again, it's one of those things, leadership thing moments, I think, where Jesus is engaging his disciples. But to be in that boat at that moment and to witness that event, I think would just, there's just so much about that, that I'm constantly trying to get my mind wrapped around the dynamics And the great thing is if you can take all of that and for me, then putting myself in a vehicle rolling up and down the highways of very dangerous places and going, I'm in a boat. It's an ugly storm around me. I'm okay. There's there's some good parts about that. But in history, that one moment in time just fascinates me. Well, 
Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure, and I hope to talk to you more in the future. Thanks. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.